Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine Banks. And today I'm wearing uh, two pins in honor of our very wonderful guest. I am wearing a donkey and an elephant, both wearing boxing gloves and facing off against each other. And it fits perfectly with our guest, who is a political consultant. And now a New York Times bestseller. Um, We talk about the great political candidates of our lifetime. Uh, For me, that includes Barack Obama and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, in part because both of them fundamentally changed the ways that campaigns communicate by adding social media. But as much attention as the candidates receive, there isn't nearly as much focus on who runs campaigns. Those behind the scenes, the organizers, the press secretaries, the campaign managers, really the people who truly make the campaign run. They work long hours for little pay or on a full tilt for the election cycle. Uh, I had the privilege of working as a field organizer in 2020 and saw just how much campaign staff put into an election cycle. And our guest today is not only one of the most well-respected and high-profile political operatives, but as Victor just said, as of the time of our interviewing her, during which she learned that she was now a New York Times bestseller author. Uh, And we will be talking to her about both being a political operative and an author. She is a veteran of 20 political campaigns at the local, state, and national levels. She's worked for Barack Obama. She's helped take Pete Buttigieg to the very top. She gave him a national reputation. She worked with Senator Claire McCaskill, one of my favorites, and uh, Governors Andrew Cuomo, Terry McAuliffe, Ted Strickland, John Corzine, uh, Martin O'Malley. She's currently working with Michigan State Senator Mallory McMorrow, who is also going to be a guest on iGen Politics. And uh, of course, Senator McMorrow went viral with her counterattack against an anti-LGBTQ attack on her. Um, And I'm sure you'll all remember seeing her wonderful takedown of her attacker. In addition, Liz has been an on-air commentator for major TV networks. She's had opinion pieces in the New York Times, um, Vanity Fair, and she's written this wonderful new book, Any Given Tuesday, A Political Love Story. And it's a wonderful read. Victor is holding up a copy. So hold it up even higher so you can see the bottom of the, yeah, there you go, uh, which is a picture of her with a phone in her hand and busy with the other one, too. Uh, we are very much looking forward to our conversation with Liz. Thank you, Liz, for being with us today. We are really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for having me. We're so excited. And I just first want to say how big of a fan I am of all that you do. Um, but I guess to begin, um, we want to try to get your take on some of what's happening now in the 2022 midterms and how you would advise Democrats. And so I guess just to begin, what's your assessment right now um, on whether the past history of the political party and power losing in the midterms is a likely outcome uh, this year? Um, So it's less likely than if you'd asked me two months ago. Uh, We actually have the opportunity to hold the Senate and potentially expand it, which I would have said was impossible if you'd asked me that um, pre-Dobbs decision. The House is a little bit of a tougher, That's a, uh, that one is going to be a little bit tougher for Democrats, not impossible. Um, but 
I feel good about the Senate because we have a lot of great candidates running in the top races. John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, Tim Ryan in, in Ohio. Ohio is a red state, but Tim is, you know, I actually talked to him just a couple hours ago. He is running, you know, one heck of a campaign. Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Mark Kelly in Arizona. So all of those states really should have been sort of off the map if uh, if we during a wave election, but now are, are are looking pretty good for Democrats. What do you think are some of the top issues Democrats should focus on um, this cycle around? And I guess you mentioned some candidates, but um, are there any uh, running for Congress this time around and also, I guess, state and local offices that you think uh, we should pay attention to? Um, yes. So I mentioned Tim Ryan and why I mentioned him is because as you know, in my book, any given Tuesday, I talk about my experience working in Ohio in 2010 for governor Ted Strickland since, um, well, including then, um, but over the last decade or so, Ohio has taken a real far shift to the right. And they only have one statewide Democrat elected there now, um, Sherrod Brown. So you would think, OK, well, this is totally off the table. But somehow Tim is leading in the polls. And that's because he's employing some really, really smart tactics that Democrats everywhere should learn from, which is he is not just trying to run up the Democratic vote. And if you try to do that in Ohio, you will not get a majority of voters. You have to go and win over persuadable and swing voters. And so he is doing something that Barack Obama did the last time um, a, a Democrat won Ohio in the presidential, which is not only campaigning in cities like uh, in Ohio terms, we call it the three C's, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati. But he's going to all of the small rural counties across rural and exurban and industrial counties across the state that have moved more to the Republicans in recent years. Uh, because he understands that, okay, it might not make a ton of sense on paper to be going to a county that is 80 20 for Republicans. But if you go to enough of these counties and you can cut the margin in them to 70, 30, 60, 40, that that is the difference maker in a state like Ohio. And he's also, you know, yeah, I, I talked to him before Fox News hit today. He's running ads on Fox News, featuring Fox News hosts praising him. And there certainly are Democrats who are, feel a little icky about seeing Tucker Carlson praising a Democratic Senate candidate. But that's what it takes to win in Ohio. And so that's a really interesting race. In terms of other people, Mallory McMorrow is someone I do work with in Michigan. She is amazing. She is a star. Um, she has given Democrats a playbook on how to fight back against these absurd culture war attacks that we're seeing in state after state. And she is working um, overtime to uh, flip the Michigan Senate, but she's also now becoming a star on sort of the national circuit, getting invited by state parties all across the country. She's going to be a guest on our show as well. So we're looking forward to uh, our conversation with Mallory. Oh, she is awesome. She is awesome. And you know what I love is we there are a lot of other sort of young stars I can name in the party, but it is really great to see 
a 35-year-old mom like Mallory um, who has politics that are that are really reasonable. A lot of the times when you think about younger politicians, you think about them either as on the very far left or the very far right. You know, it's like the Lauren Boeborts or the, you know, the DSA wing <laughs> of the Democratic Party. It really makes me optimistic about the future of the party because I feel like we have a really strong slate of candidates uh, running uh, and hopefully we'll get to see some of them win uh, in 2022. And you you touched on two things that I thought that you um, conveyed so well in a recent uh, Vandy Fair interview. And I just want to ask you about those two things. First, um, you said basically that if um, the midterms are a referendum on Democrats, we'll be screwed in November. But if Biden um, and his surrogates can effectively target Trump, uh, election deniers and anti-abortion Republicans, that can be a winning strategy. Tell us some more about that strategy and um, uh, why why you think that is. Yes, well, that was a typically understated and answer from me. Um, I look what I meant by that, and and what is going to be really important in this election is that we do not allow it to become a referendum on Joe Biden because. There's no doubt that Joe Biden is would rather his numbers be in the 70s rather than the 30s. But if it is a referendum on Joe Biden and how voters feel about him, um, it is going to be a massive red wave. So how do we change that? We we turn this into a choice election and Democrats go out every day and define the Republicans running up and down the ticket. And the good news is this, um, you know, these are not the country club Republicans of days past, whatever sort of euphemism you want to use for for Republicans. These are Republicans who um, in my book, I, I think I talk about this. Um, in 2012, Todd Akin was running for Senate in Missouri. Richard Murdoch was running for Senate in Indiana. And they just made horrific comments about um, rape and abortion that got them completely shunned by the Republican Party and that Democrats used to hang around the necks of every Republican across the country, including Mitt Romney. Now, those positions are squarely in the mainstream of where uh, the major Senate and gubernatorial nominees stand. Um, And then on the other issue of um, election deniers, we're seeing in state after state that uh, the gubernatorial candidates the Republicans are nominating are people who don't accept the results of the 2020 elections and in some cases try to invalidate the results of the 2020 elections and were people who were at January 6th on the day of the insurrection. And so we know that if they're elected, that they will not allow free and fair elections in their states again. So Democrats do have an opportunity to really go on the offensive on those issues. I'm just going to add one other thing, because we know right now that a lot of Joe Biden's unpopularity is due to, you know, the the pain people are feeling from the pandemic, the pain people are feeling from inflation, the pain people are feeling from high gas price prices, which though, have been dropping. And you hear less about that now than from Republicans than we used to. Um, 
but what is the Republicans' alternative? They haven't offered any alternative to any of these things. They're not trying to offer any cost relief or price relief to anything. If anything, they've been voting against all all the Democratic bills to offer relief to Americans because they're making a cynical uh, calculation that the more economic pain people feel, the more likely they will be to vote for Republicans. And so we need to be screaming from the rooftops about that. You're um, preaching to the choir here. And I, I think for Republicans, um, I guess one way that you mentioned the Vanity Fair article in terms of how you reach them is for Democrats to go on uh, outlets like Fox News and other right wing media outlets. Um, and what you, I think you call it like a very, very vibrant uh, right wing news ecosystem. Do you think enough Democrats are doing this? And how would you prepare Democrats for, you know, a, a hit on Fox News, news, which I would imagine would be quite scary? <laughs> it is. And, you know, I mean, Jill, you do a ton of TV hits. So I anytime you go on TV for me, even as someone who's been in this business a long time, it's a little scary Fox definitely brings a different element of fear because it's unpredictable. You know, when I was on there last week um, to promote this book, I went on with Bill Hemmer and Dana Perino. And, you know, some days the show can be totally cordial and fine. Some days, like that day, Dana Perino and I got into a, a very heated back and forth about Republicans and how how on earth they could justify importing baby formula. So, look, does every Democrat need to go on Fox News? No. Um, but I think it is smart for, it's certainly smart for Democrats who are running in purple states and red states because the reality of Fox News is that 30, around 33% of all, de of all Democrats get their news from Fox News, and that's white Democrats, black Democrats, Latino Democrats. So there's a big Democratic audience there. Two, it's a much bigger audience than any of the um, other cable news networks. For instance, when Pete did his first town hall on Fox News, it got 1.1 million um, one point, it raked in 1.1 million people tuning in. Uh, and that's about four or five times what we, he would get with the CNN and MSNBC town halls. Um, but three, uh, if you need, like if you're Tim Ryan and you need Republican and independent and moderate voters, that's where you're going to reach them. You're not going to reach them on CNN. You're not going to reach them on MSNBC. For God, you know what? You get me. I love to talk about the media, as you can tell. I love to talk about media strategy. So um, I'm going to keep going here, but I'll try to be quick. Um, for for Pete's campaign, it was really important to send a strong signal that he was going to be sort of a unifier. He was going to be like a, a healer in chief and a, the complete, complete opposite of Donald Trump. And we know that Donald Trump, uh, you know, called the press the, you know, enemy of the people and that he would only do interviews on favorable or right-leaning um, news networks like Fox News. And so Pete going on Fox News 
signal to people that he wasn't going to just be a president for Democrats or liberals or MSNBC viewers or CNN, but he wanted to be a president for everyone. So it was, that was really important. Now, how you prepare them is, you know, you, you got to watch, watch the last bunch of days on Fox News. It's really no different than any other cable network. You, you sort of understand the issues that they're harping on. I, I, I had Fox News on in the background just now. Um, cause, uh, Tim was on earlier. So right now a lot of the focus is on the recession and, and is on the economy and they just had something on border stuff and, you know, just pepper people with the most, what most hostile questions, bad faith questions, whatever it is. And sometimes the exchanges can be very, very pleasant on there. Sometimes they can get more hostile, but if, if you do have a good Fox moment, and de- smart Democrats have learned this, is that it's not just about reaching the Fox audience. It's about the secondary views. Because when you think about when Pete goes on Fox News, um, almost every time he goes on Fox News, it becomes a viral clip. Uh, hmm. For instance, his first Fox News town hall, um, I had our media monitors just pulled together all the secondary coverage that it got. It led every hour uh, on CNN and MSNBC with some of the viral clips from the town hall. So that meant, in addition to reaching this massive Fox News audience, we're reaching all day these CNN and MSNBC audiences. It got picked up in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, but also entertainment sites like TMZ Live, like TMZ <laughs> and People. So it goes to show you that um, th- there is some curiosity there. And I always encourage candidates when they go on Fox to think about how they can have a moment and really use that to get a, a lot of secondary coverage. Liz, I want to follow up on what you were saying and talk about something that Democrats are frequently criticized for. They are very frequently criticized as you have all this Hollywood talent, but you can't figure out how to message properly. You're not getting out the message about your positive accomplishments, and there are many, and you're not framing issues that would be helpful to motivate your voters and even to motivate, as you would call them, swing voters or thinking Republicans. What what things do you think they should be doing? And we can focus in on some specifics like January 6th. You know, it's a well-produced hearing. I mean, really well done. But it's not attracting that audience. Fox isn't covering it for the most part. They've relegated it, if at all, to some of their lesser than the Fox News um, channel. And so it's not reaching Trump loyalists and right-wing media watchers. How can we get January 6th and the facts that are coming out to that audience? So there are two things. I believe the impact, the way that this will have the most impact on the election, if we communicate about it effectively, is by making a forward-looking argument and tying sort of the chaos of January 6th, 
uh, Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election and subvert democracy, tying all of that to the election deniers who are up for office in 2022, Mm -hmm. whether it's the Senate candidates or gubernatorial candidates, because then it's not about just looking backward. It's about, um, you know, looking forwards and and showing voters that um, all of these things still matter. They still can happen and they can happen in your state capitals the same way that it played out in Washington, D.C. And that makes it more real um, for people. In terms of there's another aspect to January 6th that is important and it's well, well, what happens with Donald Trump? And, um, you know, outside of let's put aside whatever the DOJ decides to do or whatever divine intervention we get, um, it remains to be seen, but um, it, it, it's not necessarily with Trump's voters, but there is a feeling and there is starting to be more grumblings among Republican, Republican, sorry, Republican elites that Donald Trump can't be their nominee. They can't have a, a nominee whose only message in 2024 is talking about 2020. You can't have a message, uh, a messenger in 2024 who conducted himself the way that he did on January on January 6th, and that, you know, it's possible to have Trumpism without Trump. So, I mean, that's really more a Republican problem than a Democratic problem. But for Democrats, it's really about making it a forward-looking argument, because we've just found that a lot of voters have sort of tuned out January 6th, what it means for them, because mm-hmm. they don't think it means anything for them. It's in the rearview mirror. They weren't in Washington. If we, The more that we can make issues hit home for people, the better. Good answer. And what about, let's take um, the choice issue and reproductive freedom. Um, And you wrote a piece in the Washington Post about Democrats doing a poor job in terms of framing the issue uh, properly. What do you think Democrats should be doing differently to get the message out about why this matters and why the Democrats are the right choice on this? Yeah. And I've seen since Dobbs has come down, I've generally seen Democrats do a a pretty good job on this. What I bought, wrote about in the Washington Post was some of this message guidance that we were seeing from, um, I can't even remember which groups, pro-choice groups, telling uh, legislators legislators that some of the language they were using was, you know, harmful and that the term pro-choice was harmful and should be replaced (laughs) with the term pro-decision and that saying safe, legal and rare was harmful and should be replaced with saying safe, legal and accessible. And I said how, you know, when you're walking down the street, do you know, do you see anyone who calls themselves pro-decision? Do you (laughs) think that most people want abortion to be less less rare it just doesn't make any sense and the language policing and sometimes the activist speak that democrats engage in can really push away and alienate people who are otherwise inclined to be with us and we need to understand that most voters outside of the you know 10% who are 100% pro-life or anti-choice, 
no exceptions, and the 10% on the Democratic side who are, you know, sort of on the other side of that, that most people have pretty complex feelings about abortion. And even a lot of people who consider themselves pro-life still believe that women, in certain cases, uh, you know, with the case of rape, incest, where their health or life is at stake, should have access to abortion. And that even a lot of people who consider themselves pro-choice do support things like parental notification laws um, and certain time limits on this. And so we shouldn't be approaching this issue from the furthest left perspective. You know, this is a, this is no joke, and we say this all the time in politics, that that things are a matter of life and death. This actually is a matter of life and death for women across the country. And we've seen that with some of the horrific stories that are coming out of the women who are being denied care, you know, for um, miscarriages, ectopic pregnancies, whatever it is, and, um, you know, facing grievous injury as a result. So we need to understand that, um, that the complexity of voters' views and that everyone, um, that we, we need to get as many people as possible on, in the coalition. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, there are two ways it can really help us in this election. We know that Democrats are generally not great off-year voters. Um, 2018 was sort of an exception. Republicans, for whatever reason it is, are much more likely to vote in midterm elections. Um, uh, and that looked like it was going to be the case uh, in 2022, that Democrats were not motivated to vote. But it's a little bit harder to not be motivated to vote after the Dobbs decision. Yeah. And we should really, really be using it to motivate Democratic voters who might otherwise have been inclined to sit on their hands. The other group I think it really helps us with are you know, who the group that I describe as the, you know, Biden Youngkin voters, the voters, the suburban, independent, moderate voters who swung toward Joe Biden in 2020. But then in the 2021 Virginia gubernatorial election, um, went back and, and voted for the Republican nominee for governor. Now we can go to those voters who are generally more socially moderate um, on issues, whether it's you know, marriage equality, uh, abortion, and say, you know what? Think about it. The stakes are too high. I know that you're frustrated with Joe Biden, but you really, really just cannot afford to vote for Republicans. I think that's a perfectly fair um, argument to make. And um, I assume you would agree that it applies to, as you mentioned, marriage equality, some of the other privacy rights, contraception. um, Totally. And what about two other hot issues? Uh, Well, one other hot issue and one that's really important to me. The other hot issue, of course, is guns. And the one that's really important to me is the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, which I believe is ready for President Biden to tell the archives, publish it. It will be part of the Constitution. 38 states have approved it. And there is no legal way that they could withdraw their ratification And the timeline that was established by Congress wasn't part of the amendment, and therefore it is invalid. So 38 states have approved it. It is part of the Constitution. He just has to do it. How do we get 
President Biden to do that? Well, what's, you know what? Actually, the, I I, th- I think you might be the better you might be the better messenger on that one. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I got that's one that I, I haven't really dealt with a ton. Um, I haven't t- been on campaigns where candidates have been talking about it. So, um, you know, I'm a little bit stumped there. So, but Jill, well, tell me. Okay, how, well, that, yeah, let's go. Then you and I have to talk because I we think do. we could get this done. And it would be, I mean, if Dobbs doesn't show you need the Equal Rights Amendment, then what would? But all right, so let's talk about guns because I'm sure you've had that as an issue. Um. Yes. Yeah. Again, uh, you know, this is a matter of life and death. And it's an issue that I believe has contributed to, you know, Democrats standing in the midterms increasing a bit. Because unlike in the last few years, the recent mass shootings we've had haven't fallen out of the headlines. Um, the, certainly Uvalde is still in the headlines well after well over a month after you know after that tragic day and um so d- democrats just need to to lay out that they respect always they respect the right of you know hunters and um to go about their days but that we do need sensible gun control, that we do need sensible laws that the majority of American people support. And it starts with, um, you know, the bill that recently passed. And so we can um, use Republican opposition to that against Republicans. But I think we can also go on the offensive on some things that were not covered in there, things like background checks in some areas, not all, um, things like an assault weapons ban, uh, because people want their children to have the freedom to go to school without being shot up. And the images that came out of Uvalde, the stories that came out of Uvalde, really did seem to um, strike a nerve with people. And this is another issue where we have seen the Republican Party go very, very far to the right. Um, In 1994, when, uh, when there was an assault weapons ban, it had bipartisan support. And now you could not find a single Republican um, that would support an assault weapons ban. And not only that, I don't know if you guys read about this story, but there is a congressman from upstate New York who represented the Buffalo area, a Republican congressman. And after the Buffalo mass shooting, he came out in support of an assault weapons ban, which was, you know, very brave of him. Within 10 days of him coming out, in support of the assault weapons ban, he dropped out of the race for re-election because it was clear that he had no path and the local Republican Party had completely turned on him. So it just goes to show you that there is no space um, for independent thinking in the Republican Party and Democrats should hammer that home. Especially because it makes no sense given the number of the voters who support such legislation. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It impacts everyone. So let's talk about your book, uh, Any Given Tuesday. Um, I have it right here for our audience listening. Um, it's such a great book, and we were talking before that you uh, actually hated the process of writing the book. So why did you write Any Given Tuesday? Um, well, I wrote it because politics uh, has never mattered more. And 
I decided to start writing it at the beginning of the pandemic when, like everyone else, we were all stuck at home. And when else was I going to have that sort of ability to be in one place and sit down and collect my thoughts on politics? But I was getting calls from friends, family, all over the country, people who didn't really care about politics, never knew who their governors were, um, didn't follow presidential briefings suddenly calling me, asking about this governor doing this great briefing or, oh my God, Trump saying this at a press conference or why is the media covering it this way? And it it made me realize that it was important to demystify politics and the media for people. Um, because whether people are Democrats or Republicans or completely apolitical, Politics touches every part of their lives. And so it benefits everyone to understand how a business like this works. And still today in 2022, it does feel a little bit opaque. Um, You know, I've worked in politics now for 17 years. And whenever I'm at a party or meeting someone new and I tell them what I do, they're always like, oh, my God, wow, I've never met anyone in politics. How did you get into politics? What's it actually like? And when, I go, when I'm on Twitter or Instagram, oftentimes I get um, direct messages from people asking the most basic questions about how they get involved in politics and what it's like. So what I wanted to do was to write a book that explained the process to people, that showed them, you know, what goes down in these rooms of power, to show them, you know, how I got my start, how I worked my way up the ladder, what it was like, the good, the bad, and unfortunately, sometimes the ugly, but with the hope of uh, pulling back the curtain and maybe getting more people involved. You know, when I was in 18-year-old girl, who's a young woman who started volunteering on campaigns. There were no books like this for me to read. And um, I want to make sure now that for any 18-year-old woman, 18-year-old boy, but frankly, anyone of any age that now wants to get involved in politics, that they maybe have something that's a little bit more of a guidebook than I had at that time. I think you do that. And because I don't really understand sports, I actually didn't really understand your title any given Tuesday until I heard you explain <laughs> that it's a sports reference. So explain your title for us. And also, I guess, um, the subtitle, Political Love Story, um, most people don't associate politics again with like love. So tell us how you settled on those two. Yes. So th- um Throughout my book, I, I weave in my love for professional football. I am a big Cincinnati Bengals fan. And I also, you know, football was a big part of my relationship with my father, who I write, who I write about a fair amount in the book as well. But uh, there's a famous saying in, in football, which is that any given Sunday, and it's the idea that on any given Sunday, the best team in the league can lose to the worst team in the league. On any given Sunday, the worst team in the league can beat the best team in the league. And what matters is, you know, uh, what what matters is that you don't let your wins define you. You don't let your losses define you. And every Sunday, after every game, you get up off the field and you come back again a week later. Um, and it, it involves an element of belief. 
I mean, look at someone, look at the Cincinnati Bengals. Years and years and years in the wilderness. Um, 20-something years uh, without a playoff win. And then this year, um, they go all the way to the Super Bowl. And you, you need that element of belief in politics. And in my book, I talk about some of the wins I've had, but I talk a lot about the, some of the losses I've had. And I do know people in politics who, after a bruising loss on a campaign, that they just decide to walk away. And they decide to, I don't know, cash out or just take a more traditional job, one that's less stressful. But for me, I have never let my sort of losses define me. Um, and I've always sort of you know, dusted myself off after them and gone back out and, you know, fought on another campaign. And so politics, like football, does involve that element of belief. Now, for the political love story, you know, I do weave my I do weave my personal life into the um, book a little bit because, you know, I, I do want people to understand that, um, you know, political operatives were not just like one dimensional characters um, as are as we are often portrayed in TV shows and movies. And a lot of the highs in my professional career sort of correlated with highs in my personal life and, you know, vice versa with the lows. So um, so it was sort of a play on that. But it's also just a reality, which is that you can't be, you can't have had the career I had um, with so many ups and downs, so many different campaigns across so many different states without being completely in love with the political process. And I joke that politics is the love of my life, but it is because it's so important. And to me, it's never just been a game. It's been something that I know where any campaign I work on, if we win or if we lose, you know, that election will impact the lives of untold numbers of people. Um, and so I, that's why I love politics. That's why I called it a political love story. And like, like any great love story, you know, there is some hate involved. There is some disappointment involved. There is some heartbreak involved. But hopefully what shines through in this story is that um, all the heartbreak, all, those, all the losses, everything, that it's all worth it. And we're going to probe some of those issues that you've just referenced. Um, I want to start by asking, though, about how you open the book, which is a story about Governor Cuomo during his, mm -hmm. what turned out to be his last days in office. You were yeah. advising him. And why did you pick him out of all the candidates you've worked for uh, to begin your book? Um, it was the most recent situation. And it was it was the most dramatic. Uh, it was really the most dramatic <laughs> opening, and I sort of I wanted to draw I wanted to draw the reader in. Uh, it would have been tempting, and I frankly I would have loved to have just written a book about all of my triumphs, all of the high moments. But you know, with <laughs> a book like with with a book like this, you do need to sort of. Um, draw people in with drama right at the yeah. top. And it was something I discussed with my editors is how do I open my book? And um, we went through various different prologues and this was, this was the one we settled on because 
if you just pick up the book and you read the first three pages, you realize, okay, you know, this isn't going to be like a poli-sci 101 textbook, that <laughs> this is actually going to have some drama to it. And I try generally to write my book in a way that was um, accessible for people. I didn't want to write some highfalutin book. And, and trust me, I studied government in college. Uh, I've read a lot of uh, great political science books, but that's not what I wanted to do here. And right. I tried to uh, write a lot of um, about a lot of these campaigns in a in a way that it, it, it could almost read like fiction, in a way that um, people could really enjoy it, and it could be more of a ride. And I thought that the Cuomo anecdote from the uh, get go sort of hooked people in. And I agree with you on both points, which is. It's written as if you were talking to me and having a yeah. conversation, and you're quite brutal about some of the politicians <laughs> you talk about. Um, and again, we'll get to that, but let me finish up first with Cuomo, um, yeah. because you got to a point where you said to him, there's just no way out of this. Um, you're, you're, you're sunk. And you felt that there were so many verified accusations of um, misconduct that he just wasn't going to get out of it. And I, I'm just wondering how hard is it to tell a client um, that he's done? And what what was that like? It was easily, easily, if not the hardest thing I've ever had to say to someone in the top three, you know, the hardest things I've had to say to say to someone, even if I was disappointed in him, even if like the other advisors around him, I realized that he hadn't been truthful with us, there was still something that was extremely tragic about it all. Um, you know, think about it. He had been this really formidable governor for 11 years. He gotten a lot of really good things done for the state of New York. And for a bit at the beginning of COVID, he was like America's therapist. You know, people across the country would tune into his briefings because he mixed, he gave people the facts, but he also, you know, mixed in a lot of humanity and all of that. And he was riding so high. I, if you guys remember at the beginning of the pandemic, yes. people had, were buying Cuomo merch. He was on the cover of every magazine, on every TV show, and was built up an international reputation. So to go from that to that, a call with me and three other advisors where each, where he goes around the phone and we're, we all tell him it's over, it's done. Um, as disappointed as we were, it was hard not to feel, um, you know, that there was an element of tragedy to the whole situation. Yes. Yeah. So your first political experience was as a volunteer. Oh, holy uh, shit. For, oh, my God. What? I made the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, oh my, my God. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. It happened on this <laughs> podcast. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> if you can still hear us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Hold on. Oh my so god. So glad to be able to share that with you. That's <laughs> fabulous. Oh my god, I just I 
That's quite an accomplishment. What? I, I mean, what? Oh my God, I did not think I was going to make it. Well, we and said then, it was well written. <laughs> it was so well written. And I just, and I, I picked up my phone to see how much longer we had. And then I saw, <laughs> oh, wow. I saw the text messages and I saw a missed call from, um, sorry, I'm a little emotional. Um, uh, I saw a missed call from Tim Miller who had, um, yes. had just had a, a, a best, a bestseller. And I had been talking with him yesterday, and I, I said to him, oh, you know, I don't think I'm going to make the bestseller list. And when I saw the missed call, I was like, wait, he's, he, I doubt he's calling me to, like, offer condolences. And then I see the <laughs> other text. So, anyway, okay. Oh I'm congratulations. not expecting that. <laughs> um, wow. Well. Maybe, maybe we should skip right to one of the things that I found okay. particularly compelling in the book. And that is the story about you and Elliot Spitzer. Yeah. And um, it's compelling to me for a couple of reasons. One is because I had a similar episode of lies being told about me um, and getting very bad advice, which was say nothing, it'll go away faster. And then it lives, and this was long enough ago that there was no social media, now there is. And so until recently... The first thing that you found out about me when you went on Google was all these lies that were unrebutted. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that you were you were dating uh, a former client, mm-hmm. uh, Elliot Spitzer, and you were working for Bill de Blasio at the time, and you were just keeping it secret. There was nothing wrong with your relationship. You were both free and, you know, dating. Um, but then... You were being tracked by the tabloids and mm-hmm. pictures were published and then lies were made up. And so can you talk about, you know, how you decided to, one, share that story and the advice that you would give to people like me who had similar circumstances and got bad advice and did nothing about it? Well, I'm sorry um, that you ever had to go through it mm-hmm. um, because I know how awful it feels, how isolating it can be and how disorienting it is sometimes to read these stories about you because it's almost like they're not even writing about you. It's like they're writing about a caricature of you. And um, I was told at the time when when this was happening, I was told by the de Blasio people, you know, just Everything will be fine. Um, just don't yeah. say anything in the press. And then I'm hearing from reporters that then the de Blasio people are interviewing around behind my back to replace me, which means that I'm going to get fired. But I also um, didn't you know, try to proactively shape my message by h- hiring outside help. I had this sort of uh, vain view or... Um, it was more hubris that because I was so good at my job and so good at handling press for other people, so good at handling their crises, that why would I need anyone else? That I could handle my own crisis. And as I write in the book, 
it's an inherent conflict of interest. You cannot handle your own crisis. You can't think clearly enough because to handle a crisis, the things that you need to do is, you know, it's, you got to be really cool headed and you got to be detached and you got to be able to, um, sort of divorce yourself from it. And you can't do that if, if it's about yourself. So my recommendation to people, if they ever find themselves in a crisis is one, don't freak out. Don't feel the need to immediately respond. Get someone to help you out. You know, get a PR person or a friend of yours who's in PR to do the do the work for you. And when you're dealing with them, make sure that you give them all of the facts that can come out. Um, and I tie this sort of Elliot situation in my book. And why one of the reasons why I talk about it is because I tie it um, in with the Cuomo section of my book, because Andrew Cuomo called me in along with, yeah. you know, a kitchen cabinet of advisors and he didn't tell us the truth. So, um, how am I supposed to tell him, you know, what to say in the press or what to say at a press conference if I'm not getting all the facts from him? So it was important. Uh, it was an important vignette for me to yeah. sort of show this is how you handle a crisis. So I know we're running out of time. So um, you have so much to talk about in this book and, and we had pages of more questions, but I, I guess maybe one last question. Uh, you mentioned that, you know, your goal is to hopefully give a playbook or a guidebook for people thinking about going to politics, unraveling the curtains. Um, what do you advise young people um, to do and not to do based off of your political experience? And how do young people listening to this get involved or really anyone? Um, so w what I would advise is, and what I advise people when they ask is, don't think that all of politics happens in Washington, D.C. And the best learning experiences I had are the learning experiences that I had on campaigns outside of Washington, D.C. Because I had to interact with voters. I had to interact with voters I often... Uh, disagreed with on issues. You know, I'm from Bronxville, New York, uh, you know, a suburb 30 minutes north of New York City. And there I was, a field organizer for Tom Daschle in, in Flandreau, South Dakota. And it taught me, um, one, how to sort of interact with voters, two, how to make persuasive arguments with voters, but three, that, you know, there are many different ways to be a Democrat. And it, there's you don't have to be a Democrat. You don't have to share my views. Um, and sometimes with people who just sort of work in New York or work in Washington, D.C., they think that every Democrat's going to look like them. And that's not true. You know, most of the voters that I interacted with in South Dakota were, who were Democrats identified as pro-life. And that's not necessarily what we would think of as Democratic voters. And I wouldn't necessarily have thought of if I hadn't worked in South Dakota. So I would advise working outside D.C. And it allows you to sort of um, move up the ladder faster. Um, if you are willing to live a very, very um, transient lifestyle that I talk about. Um, and the other advice I would give is to understand that you're not going to, you know, cause sometimes I get asked questions by people being like, well, how do I become you? And how do I get your job? And thinking like, you know, they're 22, they just graduated from college, and they're going to walk onto a campaign and be the senior advisor for a presidential can candidate. That is not how it works. 
and there is a lot of unglamorous work and and drudge work that goes into uh, being a successful uh, campaign strategist. And almost everyone I know started as a field organizer, you know, started really at the bottom of the totem pole. And it's important for people to understand that, that um, there are going to be a lot of tough moments. You're going to have, you know, uh, dogs that bite you at doors, uh, voters who draw a gun, a gun, you know, at, at a door at you, voters who um, hang up on you and all of that. But all those experiences toughen you up, make you a better communicator, um, help you understand politics better. And so to get involved in politics, I would just I, I, the best way is just to start local. You know, if there's a state ledge or state Senate or congressional candidate uh, campaign or mayoral whatever it is in your area um, go in go into local office and volunteer and that's what I did I, I I walked into the New Hampshire Democratic Party office when I was at Dartmouth College and I, they just sent me out to writing letters to the editor and knocking on doors and so it's really as simple as that such great advice and thank you so much Alyssa for coming on we have so many more questions but um Hopefully we can get you back another time because um, I think this is definitely a treat for our audience. That's great. And congratulations, you bestseller yes, you. That's fantastic. <laughs> oh, my yes. God. I'm so sorry. Go I celebrate. Can't believe, <laughs> no, I can't that believe was- <laughs> Like, I can't believe that happened while I was on, while I was recording with you guys, but I like, I could not believe it. I cannot believe it. And so I've got, um, I've got a book party in like an hour. And so I've got to go get fixed up and everything. But now at it, I can say I'm a New York Times bestseller. Yes, exactly. You deserve it. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Liz Smith. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did and that you'll come back next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, you can subscribe to us wherever you follow your podcasts, also on YouTube. And please leave us a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts as that helps other people find this podcast enormously. Thank you again for tuning in. We'll see you next week for another great episode of iGen Politics. Bye. Bye.